Amen. Our topic tonight is the person of Christ. Uh, the last couple of weeks we looked at the uh, Godhood of Christ, uh, but tonight and probably next week as well, our focus is going to be on the person of Christ. And uh, I want to say tonight, this is a fascinating study, not because I'm teaching it, just as we look at the scriptures, and uh, to say the least, the person of Christ is very interesting, amazing, if you will, okay? Because in Jesus, we have one person with two natures. One is human. One is divine. And the natures, and here's the interesting thing, they are distinguishable, but they are not separate. Explain that one to me. (laughs) Now think about this. Each one retains its own peculiar properties in the person of our Savior. Now, let me let that kind of mellow in our brain for just a second as we consider what we're talking about. And we've, we've asked this question through the years over and over again. Was Jesus God or was he man? He was both, okay? Was he more God or more man? Equal. And again, we can't explain that. We just know what the Bible says. Now, now remember... We mentioned he has two natures, one is human, one divine, and they are, you can distinguish between the two, but you can't separate the two, because each one still retains its peculiar properties in the person of our Savior. Now, we spent, at least last week, probably the week before, looking in Philippians, where Paul talked about how he he came, was obedient to the death of the cross. So my question is... uh, when God became flesh, the God-man, was he less God? No. Stayed the same. Was he less man? No. Okay? So, again, there is a difference, but they retained their own peculiar identities, properties in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to say again very emphatically tonight, uh, this, without a doubt, is a very great mystery. And there's no way we can ever fully understand it. Now, again, the Bible clearly teaches that, but we'll never really fully understand it. But that being said, it's the only way to account the biblical teaching that Jesus is the same time both truly God and truly man. Now, again... Remind ourselves, we know that. We know he's truly God, truly man. He's fully God and fully man. So he has to retain those properties uh, in the person of Jesus Christ. So even though we can't explain it, we have to take that because that's exactly what the Bible says. Now, I don't want to shock you tonight, but how many know there are a lot of religions in our world? Isn't that true? A lot of different religions. And do what? You got that right. A lot of mixed up stuff in our world. And what's interesting is this. 
There are a few things that make Christianity, the Christian faith, truly distinct from the world's religions. But three of the most prominent differences between Christianity and other religions, three things. Number one, the nature of the absolute triune God. That separates us from other religions. Another thing that separates us is the person and the work of the founder of the faith. Now, who's the person and who does the work and who's the founder of the Christian faith? Jesus Christ, okay? So that makes our founder and his work different than any other religion. The third thing that makes us different is the way of salvation. Now, without a doubt, the founders of different world religions have made various claims. One would say to you and I, I have found the way. Another would say, I have seen the way. Another might say, well, God has shown me the way. Or they might say, I can tell you the way. How many know Jesus is different? John 14, 6, what's he say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So my question is, does Jesus, does Jesus say I found the way? No. He says what? I am the way. Does Jesus say I have seen the way? No, I am the way. And we, we can, you know, go on and on with that. I am the way. So in Christ, we have the one who said, I am the way. Now I gotta tell you, <laughs> Jesus made the most remarkable statement any man could make. In fact, if it came from a mere man, <clears throat> excuse me, it would be a boast of fantastic proportions. I am the way. What does that mean? Ah, no other way. None. I am the way. Now, by the way, if his claim is true, and I believe that it is, if his claim is true, this claim makes him the most narrow-minded person who ever lived. I am the way, and no man, what does that mean? No man, what is that? Come to the Father, but through him, by How many of those statements like that ruffle a lot of feathers? In fact, it's statements like this one and others. It, 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 C.S. Lewis responded, and here's what he said. He said it proposes a trilemma about Jesus. For him to claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes with the Father but through me. And C.S. Lewis wrote this. 
He said, but those who want to tell us that Jesus is not who he claims to be, but he is a good teacher. Now think about this. Or he was a good prophet. Or a good citizen. He's not who he claims he is, but he's a good teacher, whatever. And so C.S. Lewis says, when he gets to John 14, 6, where he says he's the way, the truth, and life, and you're trying to tell me he's not that but a good teacher, C.S. Lewis said, we got a problem here. Because of what he said, and I'm still quoting C.S. Lewis, what he said, he is either a liar, or he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord of glory. Now think about that. Now, bear that in mind. Now, can, now, by the way, for those who have claimed that Christ is not who he said he was, but is he, a, he, he was a good teacher, do you see a contradiction there? If, he, if he's not who he claimed he, who he was, he's what? Say it again. Yeah, he's a bad teacher because he's a liar. Or else he's lost his mind. You know, he's not in his right mind. <laughs> and it's interesting, the greatest heresies of the history of the church were about the person of Christ. And the same is true today. It's no different. But here's what's interesting. What's going on today is nothing new. It's not a new heresy. It's just an old lie in a new outfit. Now we looked at the Godhead, like I said last week in the last chapter of our study. But tonight we're going to look at the aspects of the person of Christ as our Lord and our Redeemer. And the first thing we want to cover tonight is the pre-existent Christ. Let's go to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. All right, thank you, Dan. Uh, a little bit of trivia here. You remember the time uh, when the uh, wise men came and they, uh, Herod took them to the uh, Pharisees to inquire where the Christ child would be born at, and the Pharisees told the wise men he would be born in Bethlehem. How do the Pharisees know that? <laughs> they read Micah chapter 5, verse 2, okay? They knew it had been prophesied. But if what's, our point tonight is not, you know, the, certainly the prophecy was true. Uh, we know that. Uh, but uh, Christ was what theologians refer to as the divine logos, the divine word. So the Son of God, who we know as the second person of the Trinity, our Savior, Jesus Christ, did Jesus Christ begin to exist when he was born of Mary. Long before that. And notice again. Now, when he was born of Mary, that was his incarnation. That's when he became flesh. But like Micah said, the one to, to rule Israel 
His goings forth have been from everlasting. What does that mean? From the beginning. He was pre-existent. Now again, we've spent quite a bit of time the last couple of weeks looking at his Godhood. But if you're God, when did you begin? Yeah, wherever that was, right? Uh, Bernard McGee said, where do you want to start? Okay. In the beginning was the Word. Word With God, the Word was God. But He's always existed. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Anybody got that? Want to read it? Okay, thank you, Philip. Now, again, Isaiah is prophesying about the coming of Christ. Uh, but of all the things he's called, he's also called the mighty God. So if indeed he is God, he exists for how long? Forever, okay. Revelation 1, verse 8. Okay, now Christ is speaking. Who's he claiming to be? God. I'm the Almighty. Yeah, the beginning, the end, the Alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, the Omega, the last letter. Hebrews 13, verse 8. Amen. How long does he exist? Forever. He's God. We're talking about the person of Christ. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 12. Again, talking about Christ compared to the things of the universe, Christ will not fail. His years will not fail. Psalm 102, verse 27. Talking about Christ. He's God. Now remember, because He's God, as God, Christ is eternal. He's immutable. He has always existed. And there was never a time when he was not. And guess what? There will never be a time when he's not. He is always existed. John 1, verse 1. Thank you, Dan. Now, if you're confused about who the Word was, verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is Jesus Christ. So he was with God in the beginning. He was God in the beginning. He's still God today. So the Bible often testifies of the pre-existence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible continually emphasizes his existence. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 58. Can you imagine that? Now, here he is, he's uh, having one of those confrontations with the Pharisees, and uh, they were talking about Abraham. 
how they were Abraham's children. We've never been in bondage, but they lied about that. They were in bondage in Egypt, and at that point they were enslaved. I'm not really under the thumb of Rome, so yes, they had been in bondage, and they were in bondage. And he said, they said, we're Abraham's children. What do you mean, telling them we got another father? <laughs> and what did Jesus say? Before Abraham was, what? I was. What is he saying about that? He's always been. Now, here's what's interesting. Make sure you understand the uh, profoundness of that statement. You know what the Pharisees ask him? You're not yet 50 years old. And you're trying to tell us before Abraham existed, you existed? What's the answer? Yes, he did. He is pre-existent. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, by the way, <laughs> the last two words of that verse, I am. You know, we read it kind of nonchalantly. But you know what the Jews thought when he said that? Who else said that? God said it. And that's why they, took, they, they tried to stone him. When he said, I am, they knew he was identifying with God. Whoa! Before Abraham was, I am. John 17 is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. John 17, verse 5. Thank you, Dan. So here in this prayer, he's asking the Father, God, to glorify him, Christ, uh, with his own self, with glory. Was this a new glory? What did Jesus say? No. It's the glory I had with you forever. He is pre-existent. Skip down to verse 24, John 17. Before when? The foundation of the world. The pre-existence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now in Colossians chapter 1, we're just picking one verse out, but he's talking, Paul is referring to Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 17. Thank you. What does it mean he's before all things? From the beginning, he is pre-existent. Hebrews 7, verse 3. Now, let me kind of give you a little bit of background here. Uh, the writer of Hebrews is uh, speaking about Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was a high priest that Abraham went to after the Battle of the Kings. And uh, as far as we know, uh, we don't know anything about Melchizedek. We don't know his, his mom, his daddy, or anybody who followed after him. And so technically, there was no record of his birth or his death. Now, that is not to say... That is not that he didn't born. He, he wasn't born. We know that he was. It's not to say uh, that we don't that he didn't have parents. He did have, but the fact of the matter, legally, it was as though he did not. There was no record of that. So in that, if you will, uh, he's comparing the priesthood of Jesus Christ with the priesthood of Melchizedek. So keep that in mind as we read verse three of Hebrews chapter seven. Okay, now it's interesting, uh, and by the way, I'm certainly 
Uh, sure, there's a lot about Melchizedek we don't understand, uh, but the writer of Hebrews trying to explain a little bit. said, Melchizedek, uh, and by the way, in, in that day, in the Hebrew economy, if you were going to be a priest, what did your daddy have to be? A priest. What did your grandpa have to be? A priest. You had to have descendants that were priests. We had no record of Melchizedek because he was a priest forever, if you will. But anyway, something about the priesthood of Christ, like the Son of God, abides a priest continually. Okay? That's the point of Hebrews 7, verse 3. Revelation 22, verse 13. We read this uh, similar verse earlier. Okay, again, how long has Christ existed? Forever and ever. Okay, we're talking about the person of Christ. Now, we read a lot of verses from the New Testament there, a little bit from uh, Isaiah talking about him being, all, being the mighty God. Uh, but also understand, when we think about uh, the eternal existence of Christ, uh, that it also is demonstrated in the Old Testament. And it's demonstrated in what theologians refer to as a theophany or a Christophany of Christ. Now, a theophany is simply a, uh, a visual appearance of God in some kind of form, okay? Uh, or it's a visual appearance of Christ before he came into this world. So when we think of theophany, it's usually uh, referring to God. Christophany, of course, is speaking of Jesus Christ, the Son in particular. But again, we're talking about a visible appearance of God in the Old Testament. Now remember, let's read John 1 verse 18. Okay, what's John say about who's, who's seen God? Nobody has, okay? But Christ came to declare, to explain, to exegete God, okay? 1 Timothy 1 17. Thank you. Paul, again, echoes what John had already taught, what the Bible teaches. God is invisible. So the Bible teaches that no one has seen God. The Bible see it says that no one has seen the Father himself. And uh, if we think about what goes on in the Old Testament, most uh, evangelical teachers uh, would say that all the visible appearance of God in human or angelic form uh, to the Son was manifesting him Prior to the incarnation, before God became flesh, okay? Now, we're going to look at some examples here uh, in a moment. Let's look at some Christophanies, okay? Uh, all right, does everybody understand what a Christophany is? It's a visible appearance of Christ before he took on flesh, okay? Uh, a theophany would be a visible appearance of God, where God made himself visible in some form or some fashion. Judges chapter 13, verse 15. Now, by the way, uh, there's more verses of this. Uh, I'm just taking one out, trying to save a little time. Judges 13, verse 15. Okay, I probably should have picked at least another two verses here. But uh, if, you, if you know the story, an angel had, had appeared and promised, uh, well, it was, she would be Samson's mother. She was going to have a child. Now, it's interesting. Um, they've asked the angel to stay. 
And in the process of time, Samson's father asked the angel, what is your name? Okay? And the reply was, basically, my name is too wonderful. It is too secret for you to know. And that being said, there's no doubt this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, not just an ordinary angel. Okay? A pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. Zechariah chapter 3, the first five verses. Okay? Uh, Let me do a little explaining here. This is not the Joshua... Uh, in the days of Moses, this is some years gone by. They have gone into captivity after coming out of Egypt. They're going back into captivity because of their sin. Now they're coming back out again. Uh, the nation is starting to rebuild. Some years have gone by, and they've not gotten much better. But now uh, there's another Joshua there. He's the high priest during those years. And Satan comes along, and he begins to accuse that high priest. And the Bible says this high priest was standing before the angel of the Lord. And notice the word Lord is capitalized, all the letters. That's talking about God, the angel of God. So when the Bible speaks of an angel of the Lord in that way, it's speaking about a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is interesting, okay? There we have, you know, in this vision, Zechariah sees Joshua's high priest, and he's standing before the angel of the Lord. So what's Satan doing? Doing what? Accusing Joshua. He's saying bad things about him. He's making accusations about him. But understand, he's standing before the Lord, the angel, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Now, by the way, if you read the entire story, uh, the angel of the Lord never rebukes Satan. He never says, you're wrong. He simply commands that Joshua be given a new clean clothes. Amen. Isn't that what salvation is all about? Yeah. That's what God did for Joshua. Exodus chapter 3. Now, by, if you got a question, stop me. And I'll have, uh, I'll have Dan Hendershot answer it, okay? <laughs> I'm kidding with you, Dan, all right? Wouldn't do that to anybody. Exodus 3, verse 16. Okay, thank you, Dan. Now, again, uh, this could be the theophany, appearance of God in some form, or a Christophany. Uh, we're not really sure what it was there. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, these verses we've shared tonight are just a few of the passages that most Bible scholars believe are indeed Christophanies, an appearance of Christ before the incarnation. Now, the question is then, uh, we do know <coughs> there are times when uh, God does send an angel. Uh, for example, when uh, he announced to Mary she wouldn't become pregnant, he sent an angel, okay, Gabriel. Uh, in the book of Daniel, when Daniel uh, was fasting for several weeks, uh, he sent an, an angel in that uh, picture time, and, and the name of that angel is given. So how do you tell? Uh, it, now, again, sometimes it's very clear because it names the angel, whether it be Gabriel or Michael or whatever it might be. 
but sometimes it's not so easy to tell. So how do you tell? Well, I'm glad you asked. Judges chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. Thank you, Jason. So how do I know? Well, uh, you know the story. They're about ready to go into Jericho. Uh, would you believe Joshua might be a little worried? <laughs> and he sees this appearance of an angel. Uh, that's what it's called here. <laughs> a man, at least. This guy had his sword drawn. <laughs> and Joshua, I've got a question for you. Whose side are you on? Now, first of all, we can only surmise. Wonder why Josh would ask that question. I personally believe that this appearance, this man that Josh was like no other he ever saw. Probably not. Now, I don't know if he was any bigger, but, he, but something got Josh's attention. So he wanted to know whose side are you on? <laughs> I don't know about you. Great question, right? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, Joshua, you're probably thinking, if he's on the other side, guess what? We're in trouble, right? We're in trouble. Whose side are you on? Are you for us or are you for our enemies? He said, no, neither one. He said, I'm the captain of God's army. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily say it's not just a regular angel. But then the Bible says, Joshua fell on his face and did what? He worshipped him. Now, I didn't get, I should have taken the verse, I didn't take time to do it. But you know, in Revelation, there are at least one, if not two times, John fell down before the angel. What did the angel tell him? Stand up, I'm not God. I'm not God. And I want to tell you, now, Satan would allow it, of course, because of who he is, but an angel would never allow himself to be worshipped as God. And so, and so Joshua said, you know what? I know who this is now. And what was his response? He fell down. But also notice this captain of the Lord's army says, take your shoes off. Why? You're on holy ground. You are standing on holy ground. He told somebody else that one time. Who was that? Ah, Moses, take your shoes off. So there's no doubt who Joshua saw was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ before his incarnation. And again, this commander of the Lord's army, same words that God used when Moses came before in the burning bush. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. Amen. 
How many gods are there? There's one. And God says very clearly, you will have no other gods before me. Now remember, Joshua was a man. He was God's man for the hour. He was God's chosen successor to Moses, the great man of God. And there's no way Joshua would have bowed down to worship anyone but God. So it's interesting. We read verses like that. And we see the person's acceptance of worship, which is reserved for only God. No other God. So this has to be a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are several Christophanies in the Old Testament. Christ has always been. Always. He's pre-existed. In fact, our Savior, Jesus Christ, did not come to existence the day of his birth. He came in flesh on the day of his birth. Now remember, it's important to understand, he was not born the Son of God. Why? He already was. He just became flesh. So we're talking about the person of Christ. God incarnate, the man Christ, Jesus. Now, again, when we speak of the incarnation, we're talking about Christ, the Son of God, coming into flesh. Now remember, how long has he existed? Forever. But there came a point in history, he came flesh. And the virgin birth was the way he became flesh. And these doctrines, if you try to figure them out logically, what's going to happen? Can't do it. Suppose you tried to figure them out scientifically, what's going to happen? Can't do it. But it's exactly what the Bible teaches. And we think about the doctrine of the incarnation and the birth, the virgin birth, the way he came to flesh. They involve, if you will, God acting outside the realm of natural law. They involve God intervening in human history in the most direct and personal way possible, and he did it by becoming part of it. What a God! He did it by becoming part of it. Now, i got to tell you something about Rick Martin. I won't tell you everything I know, because then he'd tell everything I know he knows on me. We'd be in trouble. <laughs> but he loves to watch football. Don't you, Rick? Yeah. But he doesn't sit there quietly. I mean, he's yelling at the quarterback, at the receivers, at the coach. But Rick, you know what? You're just watching. You're not playing the game. Did God just decide to sit back and watch? What did he do? He became part of the game. He said, you know what? I am going to get involved in the most personal, direct way I know. I am going to become one of them. And God became flesh. 
That still amazes me. But he did. God incarnate, the man Christ Jesus. How many know, this is rhetorical, and I know it is, that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. Let's go back and look at an ancient promise way back in Genesis, chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Thank you. Uh, what, what big event happened in Genesis 3 that changed human history? Uh, yeah, for lack of a better word, they ate the apple. Now, we don't, and I know Phyllis doesn't, we don't know that, but they, did, they disobeyed God and they ate the fruit of that tree. But it's interesting. Of course, God reprimanded Eve and Adam, but also Satan. And in verse 15, we had the first promise of a Redeemer. And God told Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. So right there in the Garden of Eden, God made a promise. Adam, you blew it. Eve, you blew it. But God says, Satan, you need to hear something. You messed up. But I'm going to send a Redeemer. And I know what you'll do to him. You're going to bruise his heel. But Satan, he will bruise your head. He will destroy you. So God made an ancient promise all the way back in Genesis 15. A promise of Redeemer. So the incarnation and the virgin birth were simply a part of that ancient promise given to a race. (laughs) Because once they caved in to Satan, guess what? They were now his prisoners. And God gave a promise. One of these days, I'm going to send a Redeemer, and he will have the power to release you from the bondage of the race to Satan. And by the way, Isaiah promised, Isaiah 62, I believe, that one of the things the Messiah would do is set the captive free. Was he talking about free from a local jail somewhere? No. But free from the bondage of Satan. That was an ancient promise going all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15. But then in Genesis 12, we have that promise reiterated. Verse 3 of Genesis 12. Amen. Okay, now hold on. 
when we get to Romans, we're not going to read that tonight, I don't think. But Paul talks about the first man, Adam, and the second man, Adam. The first man, Adam, was earthy. That was the Adam God created in the garden. The second man, Adam, Paul said, is heavenly. That's Jesus Christ. And the first man, Adam, represented the human race. And when Adam sinned, what happened to the human race? Got to another Garden of Eden, but they were cursed. So what Adam did brought what? The curse. But then God said, I'll send a Redeemer. And here in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, he kind of reiterated that promise. And he says to Abraham, I will bless them that bless thee, curse them that curse thee, and in you shall all the families of the earth be what? Be blessed. So as in Adam all were cursed, now God says, reminding them, Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. How many know both Genesis 3.15 and uh, Genesis 12.3 are looking ahead to Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, the Redeemer. I'm uh, so thankful that we have both the Old and the New Testament. And uh, by the way, in spite of what some things you may have heard the last few years, don't unhitch from the Old Testament, okay? Don't do that. Uh, we need both. It's all the Word of God. But I've often thought, and we don't have the verse enough, but remember in John chapter 11, uh, the friend of Jesus, Lazarus, had died. And he, he waited several days. He knew what had happened, and uh, finally he decides to go. And when Martha runs out and meets him, and, you know, she's brokenhearted, who wouldn't be? And uh, he said, Martha, don't you know, believe that, you know, that in me you have everlasting life? And she made the statement, I'm kind of paraphrasing, yeah, Lord, I know that one day everybody will be raised. And you have to wonder, where did that come from? It had to be taught in the Old Testament. Somehow they believed there'd be a Redeemer coming. And that Redeemer would take care of their sins and that everybody would want, that everyone would at least have the possibility of obtaining eternal life. So somehow she knew that. But Jesus said, Martha, don't you know that I am? Not I will be. I am the resurrection and the life. So it's interesting. God had made the promise in Genesis 3.15. He reiterated in Genesis 12.3. And talking about all the families being blessed, of course, through Christ. (laughs) And boy, poor old Job. Wouldn't you agree he kind of had a rough way to go? And, you know, if you read the entire book of Job, I hope you have, he had a lot of questions for God. A lot of uncertainties. But look what he knew in Job 19.25. Look what he says. What did Job know? My Redeemer lives. What a blessing. What a promise. And it's interesting, the very, the, the only purpose of the personhood of Christ, the purpose of His coming was the redemption of His people. The redemption of all those who would ever believe in Him. So my question is this. Is the redemption of Christ, was it good enough for Moses? For Job? For Abraham? Sure it was. It's good enough for us. 
John 3.16. You ever heard that verse before? God's sovereignty, right? But isn't it amazing? What's the only reason God sent His Son? Because He loved us. And that He might redeem us. Does God want anybody to perish? No. He wants us to have eternal life. And that's why He sent His Son. He fulfilled the promise He first made way back in Genesis 3.15. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. Thank you, Phyllis. Now, here's what's interesting. Writer of Hebrews is, of course, inspired by the Spirit of God. We know that. And he's trying to explain it to us that just the same way we're flesh and blood, Jesus took part of the same. He became flesh and blood himself. And the reason he did that, because the only way to destroy the power of death was to do what? To die. And if he took on flesh, he could never what? If he, I'm sorry, if he had, if he never would have taken on flesh, he could not do what? Couldn't die. Now, (laughs) so, he had to die to destroy the power of Satan, who had the power of death. Of course, he explained it very clearly there. And through that, he delivered us who had been in bondage to Satan all of our lives. And the writer of Hebrews said, now let me ask you a question here. What can God do? Anything, thank anything you want, right there? So, it says here, he didn't take on the nature of angels. Could he have if he wanted to? Sure he could have, but he didn't. And he realized how important it was that he become everything like we are, except without sin. So he didn't take on the nature of angels. He took on our nature. And again, that's why he is a faithful, merciful high priest. And he did that so he could make reconciliation for our sins. How many are glad that he did? Amen. 
Galatians 4, verse 4 and 5. Amen. Again, Paul's very clear. That's why Christ became flesh. That's why he was born of the woman, born under the law. That he might redeem us who were under the law. That we were in bondage. That we might receive the adoption of sons. Paul says in one place whereby we cry, Abba, Father. By the way, did you know under Roman law, if you were a father, you could disown your own son? If you adopted one, you could not. I may have been adopted tonight in the family of God. Amen. He will never disown us. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. Thank you, Dan. We're about out of time. But what was wrong with the law itself? Nothing. It was perfect. What was, what was the problem then? We couldn't be perfect. Amen. I mean, come on. I mean, let's, let's face it, folks. And you know that the Bible says if you're guilty of one, you're guilty of what? The whole law. So we can never become righteous. And Paul reminds us when Jesus came, he fulfilled the law. That now, through Christ, the righteousness of the law, which we could never get on our own, has now been fulfilled in us through the Lord Jesus Christ. The personhood of Christ. And the fulfillment of these promises, the fulfillment of these prophecies, came when the angel Gabriel came and he announced the coming birth of Jesus Christ to a young virgin named Mary. What a God. What a Savior. The person of Christ. We're going to stop there for tonight and we'll pick it up there next week, Lord willing. Boy, what a, what a, what a promise that we have uh, and what a wonderful Savior we have tonight. Thank God.